The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I don't see any American dream. I see an American nightmare. We never initiate any violence upon anyone, but if anyone attacks us, we reserve the right to defend ourselves. When you're in your own nation, in your own land, you're in a position to get justice. But when you're in another man's country, in another man's land, you have to look for that other man for justice, and you'll never get it. We're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us, but we are not nonviolent with anyone who is violent with us. Anytime you beg another man to set you free, you will never be free. We are ready and willing to pay the price that is necessary for freedom. What price are you talking about? The price of freedom is death. Welcome to Make It Plain, a show where two Christians offer reflections on the words and life of Malcolm X. I'm Philip Holmes. And I'm Taylor Gray. We are your hosts. Visit our website and make sure you download a copy of the Make It Plain Season 1 Discussion Guide. We're going to be talking about that every single week. Also, (laughs) if you have not rated us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, if they got a rating system, make sure you rate Make It Plain. Five stars preferably, but be honest. Like, rate your conscience. (laughs) Our goal is to have 300 total ratings on Apple Podcasts and 100 ratings on Spotify. So, Taylor, you ready to talk about this quote? I sure am, man. This is a good one. Then in the second semester of the seventh grade, I was elected class president. It surprised me even more than other people. But I can see now why the class might have done it. My grades were among the highest in the school. I was unique in my class, like a pink poodle. And I was proud. I'm not going to say I wasn't. In fact, by then... I didn't really have much feeling about being a Negro because I was trying so hard in every way I could to be white, which is why I'm spending much of my life today telling the American black man that he's wasting his time straining to integrate. I know from personal experience, I try hard enough. Obviously, the way he ends that particular quote may get a lot of attention in terms of what may sound like separatist mm-hmm. rhetoric, right. the whole idea of avoiding integration, mm-hmm. establishing your own community. And the thing about it is even to address how people may feel about that notion mm-hmm. is it's not all about hate. It's not all about even superiority. It more so is about this idea of how do we preserve an identity How do we reinforce values and uh, a a sense of belonging amongst our people distinct from the broader white America experience? And this is obviously written in the time where Malcolm's philosophy was more directly tied to being separatist. But if we're going to say that, we have to actually uncover the reasons why he would say something like that. And I think this quote gives us at least a peek into why he would land there. So, I mean, as you read this and, and he's detailing his experience, mm-hmm. clearly he's the only black kid in school. You relate to any of this? It's interesting. 
a lot of people assume that I come from the suburbs. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a small Mississippi town. So Mississippi is interesting because you can tell black people who grew up in integrated schools mm-hmm. and black people who didn't. Because my school was all black, and you could tell by the way that we talked. It was the way we enunciated our words. There was no twang. Mm-hmm. I, I have cousins, right, who grew up in Rankin County, and they grew up in a integrated school. And they all talk with a twang. And yep. it's, it's very interesting to see those dynamics. But for me, even now, you hear me talk, you don't hear a twang when I talk. Yeah. The school I grew up in was all black, small, one of the poorest counties in the United States, probably the second, maybe third poorest county in Mississippi. And Mississippi mm-hmm. is the poorest state mm-hmm. in the country. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I get a scholarship to play basketball at a small liberal arts college. Bellhaven tends to pull people from all over the United States. Okay. Rarely will you meet somebody who goes to Bellhaven who's actually from Jackson. I had very little experience around white people, although my father, when he remarried, uh, he married a white lady. And so we would spend our summers in Wichita. And if you've been in Wichita, you know a lot of black people in Wichita. So I get to Bellhaven. And I'm learning a whole lot about, like, cultural norms. And I remember I wore long tees. You remember we were wearing long tees? Of course, bro. Tall tees. Yeah, tall tees. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Tall tees. Because this was when I just found out about 116. Crane. This is 2006, 2007. That's how. Oh, okay. So this is when, like, Lecrae and all those guys are slowly coming on the scene. I mean, I think I bought, like, after the music stopped, second semester of my freshman year. And then... I went through some trials and tribulations my freshman year, and I felt like I needed to reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was this period where, you know, with Malcolm, like, I probably wouldn't have said out loud I was trying to be white, Mm. but my actions were all of those things. But for the most part, I was trying to fit in more with the majority of the people that I'd been kind of hanging around and socializing with. And this probably happened second semester of my sophomore year when I kind of started going through this transition. So, so so let me ask this. I mean, because you're in detail essentially describing the process of assimilation. Yeah. You know, oh, like, that's exactly what was happening. And you're assimilating into a, a dominant culture, but more so it's it's about a, a culture of acceptance, a, a standard yeah. that has been either implicitly or explicitly presented to you mm-hmm. as the best way to conduct yourself, to talk, et cetera. Right. Well, here's the thing. I, I picked up on some things very early. I noticed that people didn't judge you by how smart you were mm-hmm. in the classroom. They judge you by the way that you spoke. Mm. So case in point, I have mm-hmm. a cousin who came to Bellhaven a year after I did. We both played basketball, but like she was like, she may have been valedictorian in her class. This particular cousin, she came and she never assimilated. Mm. She never changed the way that she talked. Mm. She wasn't nearly as social mm. and she was a black woman. So the experience mm-hmm. is different. Mm-hmm. And one of the professors told her that she wasn't smart enough mm. and tried to get her to change her degree from biology. And she's crazy. like, what? So what she ended up doing, she ended up transferring to Jackson State, graduated with honors, Mm -hmm. got accepted into the veterinary program at Mississippi State, and now she has a doctorate and she's a veterinarian. But when you have a conversation with her, people on the outside probably would judge her by the way that she speaks. And that's... She's brilliant. But that's, again, like we're not talking... (laughs) These are cultural 
standards, a set of cultural standards that we didn't have anything to do with. It has nothing even, it doesn't even have anything to do with meritocracy necessarily, like what you can accomplish, achieve, grades. Malcolm is saying he was surprised that he was elected class president. Mm -hmm. And so there was something implicit that he... Malcolm understood the game. What makes Malcolm so unique and made him so revolutionary was that he had this keen insight, but also this boldness and probably a little audacity too. A lot of audacity. And he didn't, he understood white culture and he knew, and he understood the intricacies of white culture. He understood them and obviously better than they understood themselves because he tried to be one of them Mm -hmm. and he was successful at it. Mm-hmm. But he he also knew and recognized that they would never accept him as one of them. But, bro, that's intrinsic in the black experience in this country. Like, you have to learn how to assimilate on some level in order to participate in society. Yeah. And there are levels to that, obviously, as far as like what you can achieve and how visible you can become. I mean, I mentioned the presidents before, and, and we've talked about President Obama, like, this, in a lot of people's view, is the ultimate assimilationist. Like he, he could he talked in a respectable way. Part of it too, though, is that that the way that we, the way that I spoke, because I want to be clear about this too. That was a regional thing, right? Well, there's that for black too. people, right? There, there's so, that too. So, because I think Malcolm would probably even say that uh, when it comes to assimilation, I don't think that he's necessarily talking about the way somebody talks or the way somebody dresses. Or anything like that. I mean, because when you think about the nation of Islam, right? Mm-hmm. These brothers were always suited up. But always their suited up was hostile. It was almost <laughs> it, it, like it felt like, oh man, like something's fitting to happen or somebody's in trouble. Assimilation to me is deeper than just the way that you talk. Well, it's right? layers. You, yeah. It's levels. But again, I would say we would have to ask ourselves, I guess, then what is black culture? Because it's I don't the, think that white people have a monopoly on being articulate. They or, don't. Or enunciating your words. But they can judge us on how yeah. articulate we are. 100%. And that's what we're constantly encountering. Like, and so even in this podcast, like, we're two articulate brothers. Like, mm-hmm. if I just fully let loose and just start talking, like, <laughs> like a lot of ways that we talk on the phone yeah. later, that would throw a lot of people off. Sure. Like, you know, some of me and my homies. But we have to learn that distinction, that skill early. Like, this, right. there's a way that we can lay our hair down. Like and, third and, culture. A hundred percent. It's it's intrinsic to participating in this society. Code switching is a, I mean, like it's a muscle. You know what I mean? When you go to a certain place, you need to speak and act a certain way. And I don't know the levels necessarily of what Malcolm explored in the way this actually looked in the school it's setting. In that chapter, because it's called Mascot, yeah. right? Mask, yes. Yeah, exactly. it seems to me that Malcolm was realizing... Not in the way that he talked, not in the way that he dressed, but Malcolm for a moment thought that he was one of them. In this quote, he says, I was no longer concerned with being a Negro because in his mind, it's almost like this false sense of like colorblindness. Like, oh, yeah, these people don't see me as black. I'm Malcolm. And and what I think he began to realize, it was when he talked to one of his teachers he told his teachers he wanted to be a lawyer, and what did his teacher say? You're a Negro. That's not. You should probably be a janitor or a carpenter. The self deception of the whole color blindness thing is when you take the the time to walk through the progressions of that, mm-hmm. you've already like left the the discussion as far as like I. You're saying that me going through this process to see myself a certain way allows me to join the majority group. 
But what I'm saying is even going through the process has already alienated you from the majority group because the majority group's not going through the process. They're not going through the progressions. They're not trying to convince themselves of something different. They're just there Mm -hmm. and completely ignorant to the complexities involved. And what Malcolm is saying is like, he's even saying, I was unique in my class like a pink poodle. And he's proud of what he achieved because he, I think, is still internally wrestling with the whole Negro notion of belonging. And because he knows he doesn't belong on some level, his achievement actually distincts, gives him some distinction. I don't necessarily think that he recognized that at the moment. Because he says, it surprised me even more than other people. He says, but I can see now why they might have done well, there, there's, it. This there's a progression in his understanding, but right. he did say it surprised me. Yeah, it surprised him at the moment. So he understood yeah. something was different right. about him, and ultimately, he wasn't expecting to get that kind of recognition. And so there's a reason why, like, even yeah. at that young age, there's a psychology that he's processing and working through, but at the same time, like, he knows what is being communicated to him as the standards because again he's saying like i'm trying so hard in every way that i could to be white so again you've left the majority culture Mm -hmm. because you're actually working through these progressions of trying to achieve something Mm -hmm. not only like just with your grades but with acceptance and with a sense of belonging to a culture the majority culture ain't wrestling with that they just are it just right. is what it is. <laughs> right. So I'm like, I think I'm blown away at like the way assimilation culture is. It is it's obviously such a strain on us as black people. I just got a phone with a friend of mine who's wrestling with this now as it relates to just being a middle class black person. Mm-hmm. You know, before we go there, let's talk about like what is assimilation? Because I, I think that's an important because I, I, I resent assimilation is the way that you talk. Right. I, I, for me, it seems to me that assimilation is a value system, right? That's accepted or Can't that's be. adopted, right? I, because think about it. When we think about a lot of the sins of white culture, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of the cultural norms that as outsiders, we can see, yo, like, something's not right with this. Because it was always interesting to me when I find, I think it was like the editor of the Babylon Bee or something. Like he was on Twitter a while back mm-hmm. and he was trying to offer a critique to black culture. And I was livid. Here's the thing. My my thing was, and this is why, my thing is, bro, you don't know us. And when, when I say you don't know, I was I know you mm-hmm. better than you. I know your culture mm-hmm. infinitely better than my culture. And yeah. why? Because I have to. I've been immersed into your culture. It's required, bro. It, right? It's in, how, like, it's in the like, air. like how many outside of the black kid that you knew in college and this guy over here, like how many times did you go home with him? Right. And even then, even if that was one person, trust me, he was probably going through that process. Right. So even what you were seeing wasn't even black culture because you were all always the majority. But how often have you found yourself a minority amongst Black people. That, again, like, that's the kind of progressions we have to go through in terms of this whole idea of acceptance, yeah. what it means for us to be known, accepted, and have an identity. So so when it, I guess the point I was making, when it comes to assimilation, as an outsider, we oftentimes, I, I look at it like this, we come, in, we come in the white culture, and usually there are things that in black culture that we know are not good, 
mm-hmm. and, that, and, and many of us have been hurt by some of the sins of our own culture. Mm-hmm. So we come in white culture, and their sins look a little different, and they may even be strong in some of the areas where we've been weak, right? Mm-hmm. So we're like, oh, like, oh, this is nice. And then all of a sudden, grass green on the other side, right? And then all of a sudden, you stay a little bit longer, and you immerse yourself a little bit deeper, and you're going to be like, wait, that ain't right. Wait, there's, wait there's, I'm seeing this pattern. We're always I'm seeing this pattern, right? Yeah. Oh, no, this is not good. And then all of a sudden, there's two things that happen at this point, right? You either, like, try to confront it, mm-hmm. assuming that you're in a healthy place to try to, like, navigate it and confront it mm-hmm. and, like, hold on to what you think is right. Because, again, and I'm talking about, I'm, I'm describing the process for a Christian. Because, again, it's always easier for somebody who's outside of a culture mm-hmm. who is looking at the scriptures to assess and evaluate and critique a particular culture as an outsider, right? Mm-hmm. So we have sort of these fresh eyes to see some of the cultural sins that have been held on to that are normal for them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That weren't normal where we come from, mm-hmm. right? We also have a clear picture sometimes even of our culture, right? Mm-hmm. A more objective picture because we've been exposed to other different people, right? So we know that it doesn't have to be the way that it is over there. Mm-hmm. But what happens is now you get to a point where you got to either decide that you're going to fight or you're going to flight, right? And I think that a lot, this exodus that you're seeing of people leaving and being and leaving angry or just leaving, period, because they're whatever, leaving, right? Yeah. And then the people that are staying, I think that's that crossroad that we all find ourselves at at some point where we get deep. Yeah. Maybe we tried to confront it. Maybe we tried to address it and we were rejected or we were uh, marginalized as a result of what we, we were cast out. Whatever happened, we get at this crossroad and people either leave angry and some people just stay and keep getting abused. But that's the, I was going to say, that's the third option. There's fight, there's flight, and then there's negotiate. Like, you have to figure out why you would stay. And, and like, are you actually receiving benefits? Like, what benefits are you seeking to achieve? So, I mean, another way is not even negotiation. Some people just feel trapped. They don't feel like okay. they could go back. Option four. Like we're, I, I find this with a lot of, like, guys who find themselves in ministry, right? And they've entered into the cross-cultural multi-ethnic whatever uh realm and they're trying to figure out all right like this is all i know fam i went through this yeah like i look when i started pastoring a white church out in the suburbs in my city and when i made that move i guess it, it could probably be traced back to even before i started pastoring in that context I left my dad's church, which is a black church, but it was more than me leaving my dad. It was leaving a a subset of black culture mm-hmm. in in a, a family <laughs> that that ultimately had taken care of me and nurtured me and had and shaped me in so many yeah. different ways. And effectively, what I was communicating was that the grass is greener, the theology is better, the church services are shorter, and <laughs> <laughs> the people are nicer, and uh-huh. less drama, and all of the. In my mind, I had concocted that this scenario of it's, church expression. It's was like better. it's like this guy who like leaves. And it's not this bad, but it's pretty much like this guy who leaves one girl that he's been with, and he knows all of her 100%. faults, all of the her, ride or die. right? Yes, yes. And, and but she 
he's commit, but he's like, you know what? Like this girl over here, she ain't drama. She, ain't, but he don't. He just he don't know her for six months. But he like Bro. she. I think she the one. It's so it's this sin nature at yep. the end of the day is like we're never satisfied. We're insatiable, and we just something new is appealing. Yep. But here's we the, like new. We yeah, we like the newness, and we don't more even than know the else. new. Yeah, yep. and we, we don't even know the intricacies of the new. And yep. then you find out you you actually go through the experience because here's the thing. You can say the grass is greener, but you still have you have a learning curve. Like, all right, there's one way to view it when I'm driving down the interstate and I look over and see a plot of land with the house and say, wow, that looks really nice. Now, it's another point of view to pull up into the driveway and say, wow, okay, I think this is still pretty well kept. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to be invited in the house. And then it's another thing to meet the people in a context of a dinner setting. Yep. So I'm going through those progressions. Is like, oh yeah, like I'm welcome to drive by. I'm welcome to drive into the driveway. I'm maybe even welcome to come in for dinner. But when I sit down to dinner, what are we going to talk about? Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And then once we get to that level, it's like, fam, Okay, so now I have to figure out how I can belong or stay here or even come back. And I I mean, you find yourself saying, all right, I'm going to hold on to the good things that I think I'm experiencing and learning. But at the same time, there's these other things that I may not have identified yet, but they're unsettling. And and I feel like I'm being forced to change into something that I'm unfamiliar with or I don't even know if I agree with. And then it turns over time, if that same kind of uh, effect is happening, it turns into hostility. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, you're not about to turn me into. So then you're back at your options. You're going to fight it. You're going to be like, oh, no, I don't need this. I'm going to leave it. Or I'm going to say they mean so. And I do like services being an hour. And I do like the way that the doctrine is presented. Or the paycheck is nice. Yeah, and the (laughs) paycheck. Get right to it. The paycheck is so much better. All the money, baby. All the money is out here. And am I really going to go back to a black church? Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like, am I going? Because here we go right now. We got this whole leave loud movement. And, and largely, I support it. I, I understand why it's happening. Yeah, I understand. But the 100% thing, understand. The thing about it is we're trying to contend with what does it mean to go back to the black church or you have to create something new or even negotiate within the, the cultural right. context there. Right. But again, like we're still searching for acceptance. And I do know one thing I'll say this for me is I ain't trying to be white. So if you identify with Malcolm here and that's just an experiential identification, I identify with that. Yep. One of my earliest memories as a child, and, and I was really into superheroes and all that different stuff. I'll never forget, bro, like as a maybe five to six year old kid, just seeing Superman, Christopher Reeve, Superman for the first time. I remember wishing in my own head that I was white with blue eyes because of Christopher Reeves. Right. I wanted his life. Superman. I wanted his powers. I wanted all of that. So you're psychologically trained to see white as right Mm -hmm. as the best as Mm -hmm. the highest form of evolution as a human being but then bro you start to come into your own you have experiences you start to identify the ways that costs you and takes from you and then at the end of the day and the compromises right you, you gotta the compromise thing, the, the things that you know that's are a wrong. better word than negotiation yeah that's a better word you what do you have to compromise mm-hmm. in order to stay mm-hmm. And, and I mean, bro, like, of course, I've reached that point where I feel like I'm both fight and flight because I still want to contend yep. for the white relationships I have. 
But I ain't trying to go eat y'all's food all the time. I ain't trying to go. <laughs> I ain't trying to listen to y'all's music. I ain't trying to go to the to enjoy some of the things y'all enjoy. I don't think that's really flighting, though. I think that's you being. I think that's you being comfortable in your own skin. But it does draw a line because sometimes when you refuse the invitation, it feels like a hostile act. If you just say, "I'm not interested in," oh, that, okay, I got you. Like that doesn't tickle my fancy or. What you like doesn't affect what I like. I love you, but I don't do that. Like, and to create that distinction sometimes like challenges the nature of the relationship. So now I'm feel like I'm in a position to say, hey, let me teach you something. Let me say to you that this is what I like and I'm going to present it to you as a means for us developing a relationship. And I, I felt like kind of like the adverse of that where I'm in this hostage situation to say, you're going to be good with me as long as I accept the things that you like. Mm-hmm. But the moment I say, I don't want to watch soccer no more, or I don't like reading these books, the, these authors are, are not credible to me anymore, mm-hmm. then somehow I'm out of the Christian community and the faith. Mm-hmm. Like that's how, unfortunately, that's how hard the line gets drawn. And those are the consequences of making those distinctions. Yeah. So one of the things I think, too, that is important to point out here is like we all know how much power class presidents have. We already had this episode about symbolic victories, right, or symbolic positions. Right. This is another one. So he's voted class president. Right. That's just that's purely symbolic mascot. Tokenism. Tokenism yep. is what it is. And it's one of those types of positions where the powers that be can determine how much power they want to give you or how much power they don't want to give you. But the goal is to sort of give this facade of progress when progress is not really being made at all. When you look at Malcolm and he's hitting you with a voted me class president, but then when he actually tried to, because typically you class presidents, when they graduate, they- they, He wanted to realize kind of the progression of his achievement. Right. Yes. Class president, valedictorian, lawyer. Yeah. I'm on my way. I want to be a lawyer. And he began in that moment to see- Oh no, Malcolm! It, my progress doesn't, or my progression doesn't mean anything in the general society sense. I actually have to do more to get there, more than my other classmates, mm-hmm. because they're not valedictorians, they're not class presidents, they're not at the top of the class, whatever title you want to give it. But it's already assumed that they're going somewhere. Yeah. For me, it's assumed I'm going nowhere, no matter how much I achieve. Mm-hmm. And so we're back to the previous well, and, quote. And I think even for this, I think it's not just assume that you can't. I think it's, it, it was assumed at the time that you shouldn't. Yeah. It, it, no, it was like, no, he was like, you shouldn't yeah, try yeah. to do this. Like, yeah. you should be a carpenter. Yeah. Like, and why did he see him like that? There were assumptions that he made about him. Prejudice. 100%. Right? Yeah. So, so and to tell a kid that when a kid says, I want to be a lawyer... And he was like, and, and here's the part that got Malcolm. Malcolm was like, but there were other people that I know I was more intelligent than. That when they would say I want to be these things, he would be like, yeah, you could do it. And and here we are. To me, like the clearest example and maybe the most widespread example. Again, I'm back to the presidency. You've got Barack Obama, who has literally cut his teeth in the ways that you should in order to ascend to the role that he ultimately ascends to. But then his predecessor and the person who follows him is clearly deficient in some of the ways. You talking about Joe Biden? 
Of course. <laughs> Joe Biden can't put together five words. He struggles. Yeah, like he's literally has is, is like speaking as if he's a is a puppeteer. Yep. And, and I remember when I compare him to Trump, because I, I think to some extent Trump, you see what you get because he can't help but like you said. Man, I'm about to say, no, nah, he, he, he can't help but tell him something. Yeah. But but Trump, Trump is all about the deal. So he's not at the table because he care about you. Yeah. He's at the table. He's trying to figure out, like, all right, what are we both going to get or what I'm going to get and you're going to get enough to keep you happy. That's what I'm saying. Right? He's That's genuine. The deal. He, right? he wants what he wants and he's going to yeah, do what you know. he needs to do to get it. I, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm saying that you're right. He's not skillful enough to hide it. But at the same time, I believe him when he talks about something he cares about and when he kind of has a line of sight on something like this is going to come off like I admire the guy. But I think what I is the is, I don't think you admire anything. I think you like I that you can see truth. right through. Him. But I admire somebody who's going to be a straight shooter, even if it's something that I completely disagree with. And I'm appalled. You can by. see him coming. A hundred percent. You can see him coming. Like I can have a conversation with that person and feel like we had a genuine conversation. We right. left at opposite sides of whatever the subject is but at the same time I know where that person stands so again to get back to the differences and experiences of black assimilation versus white dominant culture experience Joe Biden clearly is deficient in some areas that are publicly viewable and measurable same as Trump public speaking like even an endearment to family like these are deficiencies that are blatant and to me like one of the greatest examples and evidences of white privileges is Donald Trump is to say like this guy can become president this guy can do whatever he wants have terrible grades have a checkered past stand up in front of a bunch of people and say all of the ignorant things that he wants to say and have a fan base have a rabid fan base and be on track to be reelected in some time in the near future and for me it's like President Obama is like <laughs> he is the picture of black assimilation into this fully formed actualized view of what white people should and could accept which is probably why he got two terms at the end of the day but still the heavy critique is that From he didn't do it. depends on what you're talking the critiques are always going to be different progressives love them white progressives love them because that's what they want. They want that assimilated. They're, waff- they're waffling these days. They like Michelle better than her right now. Better than him right now. Oh, you put you also okay. If I'm just looking at Obama for Obama's time, right? It was mm-hmm. 2008, mm-hmm. right? Obama changed this country. Yes, he did. Like forever. The stuff that he did during the stuff that happened, and he probably played a huge role in, was revolutionary. It just for me, it didn't benefit black people that much. Well. Uh- and that's I think separate, I, I, and that's right, I know I'm not trying to get into that, no, that no, conversation. But, I, but but to your point, so yeah. here's the thing: like Obama did change the country, 100. percent He is, in my opinion, the classic assimilationist. 100. Because he had to give up. He, so there's the option, the compromise. What do you have to compromise, Jeremiah? You got to get that brother up. I don't care if that's your church. I don't care if this person literally helped you and formed you in the way you became who you are. You can't keep that. You can't keep that in the part of your identity journey. Mm-hmm. You got to identify with all Americans mm-hmm. and that don't identify with all Americans. Mm-hmm. And that's primarily a lot of the critique that the black community gives him is to say, like, we want you to identify with us. We deserve to be represented in our full complexity. Even the people that speak loudly in ways that are nuanced and we may not necessarily all agree with what they say. It's a part of our family. But you're told as a measurement of experience in white America, that's forbidden. Mm -hmm. That's got to be gone. Mm -hmm. And yet an experience of white America is that we've got to accept Trump. Mm -hmm. 
and say like, oh, no, he's accepted, though. Mm-hmm. I'm like, fam, like what in the world are you are you being forced to deal with? It's unequal. It's, it's unequal. It's ultimately a hostility that that causes us to suffer. In Malcolm's case, he had to work through a psychological progression to see himself beyond what his teacher concluded about him. And ultimately, he had to love what it meant to be black. He wanted to be white. And then he finds himself at a place where he's like, integration actually is an invitation. That's his perspective. Is like when you try to live in their world on their terms, you're inviting the trauma that comes with that. And then you have to work through that to even discover yourself again or to negotiate, compromise, whatever you need to in order to succeed in whatever your craft is or just leave. Do what I th- do. What I say, leave. Mm-hmm. Find yourself and your identity in the black community that you feel safe in and the cultural representation that comes with it. Here's, here's, here's the interesting part and the cool part about Malcolm. By the time you get to the end of the book, he is no longer anti-integration mm. and no longer anti-partnership. But there is this standard where he's not going to let his values get compromised mm-hmm. by white culture. So there's a story of white lady who says, who walks up to him after a, a conference and is like, I want to join your group. I want to join your group. And Malcolm oh, just yeah. basically tells, Wait, you can she, support she us, you can give, and we appreciate the support. You but, talking uh, about the movie from Spike, the Spike Lee depiction of it? Because there's the white woman who walks up to him at the college uh-huh. and says, hey, I care about your issues. And right. What can I do? Right. And what's the response? His from response about? is you can give and you can support, but you can't join us because when people, white people join us, they tend to take over. Denzel's depiction said nothing and he kept walking. Yeah. <laughs> so so here's the thing. It's like, I know, bro. But essentially, essentially nothing. But no, it's, it's like the extreme of today. Dr. Umar, super separatist. Like we don't need nothing from white people. We can't even marry white people, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still even something to uncover behind his reasoning there. But then the other side of it is, I don't know, name your assimilation is Candace Owens. Like we, everything the white people say is right and good and this we need to embrace everything that they say because they're right and it's true so at the end of the day i i think like we find ourselves in a place of nuance again where we should be able to understand what's being said and also the dangers of the extremes see see the the good that's there appreciate it thank god for it but you get to the point of assimilation when you are unable to critique yeah and i know so many people who they cannot critique it but they'll critique black culture all day even though they ain't been a part of black culture for 10 20 25 years yeah but they will not say one bad thing about white american culture white evangelical culture in our case because they'll critique white culture but not white evangelical culture and here's the thing too and i just got to say this i know we're we're running short on time but the the call is for a lot of white folks in particular is when are black people going to critique black culture and actually deal with the issues that we have internally. My response to that is that's being done, but maybe not being done publicly. There are internal spaces that we make where it's a family issue in a family discussion. Mm-hmm. 
it's not for mass consumption because this white gaze or white lens on what we should be doing. It's usually taken and weaponized. Ain't nobody trying to hear what you think what we should be doing. You don't get to judge the way we discipline our own and or the way we address our issues. And it's not sexy to the media either. The media likes to promote and, and show footage of things that are interesting to white culture. And they're not interested in like black people working in their communities. No, they don't ever promote when we are actually in the streets trying to work with gangs or when we're actually in the streets trying to support, bring support and let's to families. Be, and let's be honest, like we're not super PR savvy, nor are we trying to necessarily get PR for these things. Again, we're back to Malcolm. Malcolm says that the media is an element of white supremacy, the institution that actually promotes and, and, and provokes ideals that align with white supremacy. So Naturally, they're not going to cover that. They're not going to show our advancement. They're not going to show our sophistication, not going to show our higher qualities in the ways that we address these things because it's not designed to. So I just want to just encourage white brothers and sisters out there. Like, what about you guys dealing with your issues, et cetera, et cetera? We are, but it's not being covered. I'm telling you, at least not to the degree our faults are. We're being demonized as a measurement of the construct of white supremacist media. And the way that we get depicted is not in the full range of our beauty and who we are and our complexity, but our worst faults in the justification of the impoverished, the impoverished, the oppressive state that we're in. See, you deserve that. You don't know how to take care of your own. I mean, Jackson, Mississippi is like one of those examples. Like you, you mentioned in a previous pod, like it's black people down here. There's, and see, here's the thing. We could depict that in a certain way to say like, wow, that's cool. That's beautiful that this many black people can live together in harmony. But it gets depicted the opposite way and say, oh, now y'all just all poor and broken. You can't do nothing better. Mm-hmm. And that's terrible, man. We have to do we have to do work to actualize the full vision of the beauty of our community. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to Make It Plain. For more resources related to Malcolm X, please visit our website, makeitplain.co, where you can subscribe to the show at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, Radio Public, Google, or via RSS, and never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we appreciate the rating on Apple and Spotify. Our goal is 300 ratings on Apple Podcasts and 100 ratings on Spotify. You can also just share the podcast with a friend or relative that you think might enjoy the episode. Give it to them in ways if you think they might not like it. You might be surprised. Be sure to visit our website and download this free resource, Make It Plain Season 1 Discussion Guide. Join us next week as we continue our reflections on the words and life of Malcolm X. Peace.